Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me as always is a man that likes to rock and roll all night and part of every day. He is the captain. Well, Beth, what can I do? It's good to be seen and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling your friend. Tonight, the fridge is full with Genesee beer, garage grade three out of five bottle caps. Genesee. 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 Genesee beer is an American icon, Captain, and today every can, every bottle, every pint glass delivers the same full taste and quality that made it famous way back in 1878 when you were in high school. That was my jam. Genesee. Genesee. Genesee is, Genesee. Genesee is truly a great classic beer, and this week's fridge is full. Thanks to these truly great guys and girls. First up, we have, in the greatest town in America, parts unknown, we mm-hmm. have Alex. We also have Lori, and we also have Leanne. And just a quick announcement to the great people of Parts Unknown. Mm-hmm. The annual early spring tractor pull has been postponed until it stops snowing. Look for announcements soon, hopefully. And a big shout-out to Ashley in Greensburg, Pennsylvania. Let's go north of the border. Let's say thank you to LaDonna up in Fort McMurray, Canada. Also in Canada, a shout-out to Karina in Ottawa. Wait, want to do one more Canada shout-out. A long-distance cheers to Tarina and Port Coquitlam, British Columbia. Mm, there is no way that you got that correct. It's a, it's a boat. It's a boat time that you start looking this stuff up. Let's give a cheers to Tiffany in Bellman, Iowa. And last but not least, we have Amy from Kirkland, Washington. So cheers. To, cheers, everybody. Thanks to everybody for filling up the fridge for this week's show. If you want to help us out with next week's show, go to truecrimegarage.com. Click on the donate button. And we have some uh, special announcements coming up soon some things to tell you but if you're not listening on the stitcher app you want to go download that stitcher app for free today and that's enough of the business everybody gather around grab a chair grab a beer let's talk some true crime
following is taken from letters to John Paul Fay from Arthur Shawcross, written behind prison walls. Hello, John. You can call me Art if you want. The stationery you chose is quite good. Reminds me of someone I knew one time. Tied up, blindfolded, and gagged is good. Her legs would not be tied. Wide open. I like blondes, brunettes, redheads, or whatever. But I am choosy in the type I crave. But at times I lose control and it's as if I made a snuff film. You forgot to mention a saw or two. My specialty is the keyhole saw. It's what I used on three victims. Then you have the jigsaw. Real handy. OJ didn't kill Nicole. His friend did. Think about it. He also had a white Bronco. It's very strange it was gotten rid of right away. So you tell me. Something worth looking into? John, if you want a woman for the winter, pull one of the homeless. She will like it inside all winter. Then in the spring, let her go. I've been there. All winter with two women in the apartment. What tastes better than pork? Jeffrey Dahmer was into eating and torturing his homosexual partners. As for me, I only ate certain parts. Quite tasty at that. Don't need salt either. Ed Gein's last victim was just about like one of mine, but not tied up. Mine was laying back, legs open, with a silly grin on her mug. John, the saw man. Every human, no matter what color, looks the same after they're skinned. If you go to Southern Cal, stay away from any earthquake section. AIDS lets you and I waste some morons. Be cool, pal. Don't hurt anyone. At least don't get caught at it. Gotta go, pal. Good day. Art. Anna Marie Stefan, age 27, was an emaciated sex worker who took to working the streets to support a drug habit. She was last seen alive on Saturday, July 8th, 1989, while walking along Lyle Avenue. Arthur Shawcross had met her by the Princess Restaurant on Lake Avenue, and he walked with her to the back of the YMCA. He then drove her down to the driving park, and during oral sex, he grabbed her throat and strangled her before rolling her body over the edge of the Genesee River Gorge. It is reported that she was frustrated after Arthur could not get an erection after 40 minutes. It's also alleged that she threatened to tell the police that she had seen Arthur Shawcross with Dotsie. Remember, she was the victim that we discussed yesterday. Mm-hmm. Anna Marie's body was found on Sunday, September 11th, 1988. This is by Hector Maldonado while he was searching for returnable bottles so that he could save up some money to buy cigarettes. The victim was lying on her left side, curled in a semi-fetal position. A pair of Calvin Klein jeans were pulled down around the ankles and turned inside out. 
A white tank top with red shoulder straps was wrapped around the right wrist, and a clump of hair had been ripped from the skull. The eyes were missing from their sockets. Now, just three weeks later, on Saturday, July 29, 1989, Dorothy Keller, this was supposedly Shawcross's friend, would be his third victim. Now, she was different from the first two in the sense that she was not a sex worker. She was a 58-year-old woman. She was homeless. And Shawcross had met Dorothy when she worked as a waitress in a diner that he had gone to. The two struck up a friendship, which had quickly turned into an affair. On an afternoon, this was um, on his way to fish in the river. Mm -hmm. He stopped when he saw Keller to speak with her. When she found out where he was going, she asked if he could take her with him, and he agreed. According to Shawcross, they spent the morning fishing and making love until around midday when it started to rain. Now, didn't she live with him at some point? I believe so. There, there, there were a couple people that Shawcross had affairs with, or so he would later claim, because right. we have this individual here that would end up a murder victim. They can't tell us otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that I think that we're going to see here with Shawcross is there seems to be a reason for most of these murders, or at least a reason that he has made up in his mind. You know, either um, the the woman made fun of him or bit him or assaulted him or mm-hmm. tried to rob him, and therefore he lost control and decided to kill them. And with Dorothy, uh, the interview that I saw, Arthur was saying that Dorothy lived with him and that he also paid her some weird amount, like $4.32 or something, to clean the apartment. Yeah, he would claim that there was a couple things that sent him into a rage. You know, they're they're huddling together in this crude shelter that Shawcross put together mm-hmm. while it rains out there. And he states that while they're huddling together, they get into some kind of argument. And it starts off with an argument about her stealing money. And then it turns into they're arguing about his relationships that he has with Rose and with Clara. He claimed that she started to threaten him, telling, saying that she was going to tell the other women about their affair. Right. And this is when Arthur Shawcross became angry. He picked up a small log and he beat her on the side of the head uh, until he killed her. Now, he, he hit her body under a fallen tree, and then he went home. Her body was found on October 21st, but he later told police that at one time he had returned to the spot several months later and removed the skull and dumped it in the river. Yeah, and in the interview I saw, they said, oh, how did you re- you know remove the skull? He said, you just do. You just do. Yeah. He doesn't have that big of an accent, but yeah, sounded better. <laughs> sounded better in my head. On Friday, September 29th, 1989, Patricia Ives, this was another Lake Avenue sex worker, also known as Crazy Patty. She was um, 25 years old at the time, drug dependent, a high school dropout. She did have a a, a baby, a young child. Uh, who had been placed in foster care. Some say that she once was a very attractive woman, that she she used to bear more of a resemblance to the film star Julia Roberts. 
Um, but by this point, because the drugs had taken their toll and she was right. a bit of a walking skeleton, she had uh, ragged and unkept hair. Uh, and she also had needle marks from her elbows to the, her fingers. That's sad. It was also believed that she might have had the AIDS virus. Now, Ar- Arthur Shawcross claims that she offered him sex for $25. Um, when he approached the same diner where Dorothy Keller had worked, he agreed to this and they went to a construction site while there. Uh, and while having sex, Shawcross says that he caught Ives trying to remove his wallet and pushed her hard against the ground. She began to cry and he raped her and began to strangle her until she didn't move anymore. Shawcross said that there were children playing nearby and he states that I put my hand over her mouth and held her nose. She didn't struggle. She didn't holler. She didn't fight that he knew her and that Patty had been in the company of a white male who was riding a bike with balloon tires. There were fishing rods protruding from the cycles rear baskets. Patty was reported missing the following day by her pimp slash boyfriend who on the streets went by the name, get, get ready for this. Guy. <laughs> okay. This is a, it went pe- by the wait, name. This is the pimp's name. Yes. Okay. Rat face Billy. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. I'm telling you. <laughs> who's, uh, your, who's your boyfriend? Oh, you know, old, old rat face. <laughs> pa- uh, we shouldn't laugh. Uh, pot, Patty's body was found by children who were looking for a lost baseball on Friday, October 27th, when they saw a foot sticking out from a pile of flattened cardboard. The corpse was clothed in black pants and a sweatshirt lying face up, and a wedding ring was missing from her finger. There were no shoes or socks on the body, and maggots had devoured most of the flesh. Mm. On October 23rd, 1989, June Stott... Uh, was 30 years old, was the youngest of eight children. She was homeless. She apparently heard mysterious voices in her head and had been taken to sleeping on Lyle Avenue. Now, she's she's different in a sense that she's not a sex worker or a drug addict. This mm. is something that you and I have spoke about before on our little show here, our little garage show, that taking care of people that have mental health issues yeah, but I mean, I also think we have issues with, you know, trying to take care of, you know, the sex workers. I mean, whether it's, you know, should be legal or shouldn't be legal. I mean, we have to do a better job. Well, I only point that out here because from everything I could gather, it appears that this this young woman was simply homeless because of of the problems she had. And it wasn't due to drugs or anything right. of that nature that she simply needed to be taken care of and didn't have anyone to help her with this. Now, Shawcross, you know, this is, this is what we will see time and time again from, from monsters like Shawcross. They will find somebody, they will come across somebody with, uh, let's say what he would determine to be a weakness. And he's going to prey upon that person and Mm -hmm. make them further victimize them. Because he can. Yeah, and he's going to talk her into going fishing with him, which we know is a bad thing. Well, and when they're down by the water, he's trying to talk her into having sex with, with him. 
And she refuses, and he says this is when he decided to strangle her. Now, two days later, he returned to the body, and he dragged it down into the... um, There's an area there with those large cattails. He dragged the body there, and using a knife, he cut open her body from the breastbone to the crotch. He then gutted her like a, a fish, using his words, throwing the entrails into the river. On Thursday, November... Well, hold on. I just want to point out that in the interview I watched on him, he claims that this attack happened, and he didn't leave. He was there all day, and that he actually cut her open beforehand. Before returning to the body. Right. Now, that's what he claims. Now, the only reason why I bring that up is that you see a lot of times in his stories, now, he's either misremembering or he's making stuff up as he goes along. Yeah. And on Thursday, November 23rd, a man walking his dog, he noticed an ice-covered object. It was a piece of carpet under which was the badly decomposed body of June Stott. Mm -hmm. The corpse was face down, but lividity staining showed that she had been rolled over long after death. The right leg was bent inward at the knee, elevating the buttocks and suggesting the possibility of intercourse after death with the body. The vagina was missing from the body, and Arthur Shawcross later said that he had ate it. Yeah, and wow, this is a graphic show. Um, But law enforcement are now well aware that they're looking for a serial killer. Well, and that's kind of a unique situation, I guess, in the sense that that's not always the case. You know, sometimes they arrest a guy for a murder and then later find out that he's guilty of three or four or five. Right. Here we have enough of a consistency in victims and how often they are finding these victims that they're well aware that they're probably looking for, they're at least looking for a serial killer. Mm-hmm. It's undetermined if all of these are connected to the same guy or not. Yeah, and so they actually had a couple sting operations that they set up and having police officers go undercover and because, you know, a lot of these victims were sex workers, so they were trying to, you know, figure this out. Now, what Arthur talks about in his interview is that he used to hang out at the Dunkin' Donuts, mm-hmm. and he happened to be wearing, like, for whatever reason, he says, some very shiny shoes. And so when these officers were in there talking about this stuff, that they kind of just assumed because of his shiny shoes that he was law enforcement. Okay. But none of them were dressed in uniform so they started talking about how, how they're trying to run the sting operation mm-hmm. and basically by just being at that donut shop he learned uh, i know there's probably a bunch of cop jokes out there with the donut shop but he learned all the decoys and so he could stay away from them. right right he would he would overhear these officers talking about their investigation at times he was even speaking with them and it, he was a regular in several diners and coffee shops, and this allowed him access to those uh, individuals. Now, there were several victims in the course of November of 1989. Mm-hmm. Marie Welch, Francis Brown. There's one that I do want to talk about in particular. This is a story from early November 1989. A woman by the name of Joanne Van Nostren told police about a client named Mitch, a guy that called himself Mitch, who had paid her to play dead. The man also tried to strangle her. Mm. She pulled a knife on him and fought him off. 
This was the first real lead the investigators received. It was the second time that the man with the same physical description named either Mike or Mitch had been mentioned in reference to the murders. Interviews with many of the Lyle Street sex workers indicated that he was a regular and that he had the reputation of being violent with the women. And Elizabeth Gibson was also one of his victims. Yes, she was last seen working the streets on Lyle Avenue on Saturday, November 25th. Her body was found just two days later by a deer hunter walking through the woods. Now, at this crime scene, police discovered tire impressions in the muddy ground, and they also discovered blue paint chips uh, from where a vehicle had scraped a tree. Now, this paint would later be matched to Claire's blue Dodge Omni. This was, of course, a vehicle that Shawcross often borrowed. The His ninth victim, or believed to be ninth victim, was Darlene Trippy, age 32. She was last seen alive by her sister on Friday, December 15th. It wasn't until after his arrest that Shawcross was able to direct police to Darlene's frozen body. I want to point out something, though, here, Captain. We... We're seeing a frequency to this, aren't we? I mean, we're talking about multiple victims in in the same month. Mm -hmm. We're talking about what they would later say probably 11 victims is what we're looking at is is pretty much a certainty. Uh, Probably more victims were involved in this series that were not included in his later convictions. Possibly, yeah. But we're seeing... seeing what we've seen from time to time before, you know, when we discussed Ted Bundy or the green river killer, where you see a guy that has this capability that has murder on his mind, who is appears to almost have spiraled out of control to the point where he's murdering mm-hmm. two, three people a month. Well, let's talk about how old noodle Dick is caught. Well, so the investigation kind of works like this. We have most of the victims were sex workers who worked in the red light district of Lake and Lyle avenues. The women were either strangled or beaten to death and each was disposed of naked or partially clothed around the city and close to or in water. Most of the victims had debris stuffed into their ears, nose and other body cavities. Mm -hmm. Their clothes were often found neatly folded or close to the corpses which ranged in decomposition from skeletal to preserved. In several instances, the body exhibited signs of having been partially eaten by wild animals or cannibalized by the killer himself. Recognizing these patterns, the Rochester police doubled the size of its physical crimes unit. Round-the-clock surveillance by Rochester PD tactical unit focused attention on the red light district, where many of the victims were last seen to be alive. The services of the FBI profilers were called upon to complete a psychological profile of the serial killer. The successful capture of Arthur J. Shawcross was due to an equal combination of good luck and dogged police work. Ultimately, though, it was the mindset of this psychopath that ultimately sealed his fate. One of Shawcross's last victims was June Cicero. She was aged 34. She was a strong character with a drug habit. She had arrived in Rochester from Brooklyn, New York in 1973, and she had been well known on the streets of Rochester where she was regarded as something of a mother figure to many of the younger women who operated in the red light district. 
She was a pistol. Yes. June suddenly disappeared without a trace from the red light district. Uh, this was on the late evening of Sunday, December 17th, 1989. Now where this comes into play here, captain is a police helicopter crew spotted her frozen corpse lying in the icy Salmon Creek on Wednesday, January 3rd, 1990. Mm -hmm. The body was naked except for a white sweater and white socks. Arthur Shawcross was seen standing on a nearby bridge by the same helicopter, and he was seen dropping something into the creek before driving off in the vehicle. It was this incident that would later lead to his arrest. Well, this is kind of confusing. Uh, so the body was found on the third and what we think based off reports is on the fourth is when they would see him because what, what law enforcement started to understand is whoever is committing these murders is going back to the scene. So the, he probably, um, probably dumped her body before the third. She was found on the third. Probably the fourth is when he is caught, which in my reports, he's urinating on the bridge. Some have speculated that he was uh, masturbating on the bridge. Well, and I think I think in regards to that, Captain, they couldn't determine what it was he was doing. I think they could determine that possibly his pants were down or his fly was unzipped. Yeah. And then so I think they ended up pulling him over. Well, what, what they ultimately end up doing is the vehicle that he is in that night, they're able to trace that vehicle. Mm-hmm. And they they trace that vehicle back to him. In a sense, that they, they connect it to him because it belongs to one of the women that he's seeing. Remember, he's right. taking turns driving his wife's car and his girlfriend's car from time to time to pick up these women to commit these murders. Well, when they trace this vehicle back to him, it doesn't take long for them to run his his background and figure out that this dude has murdered people in the past. He's been convicted of one murder. Right. And... What they decide to do is they decide to, okay, he he claims that he had no involvement in any of this. However, they're going to give him the night to rest, but they're going to observe him. They're going to surveil him. They're going to keep him under their watchful eye. Early that next morning is when they take him down to the police headquarters. One thing that the detectives that spoke to Arthur Shawcross in his questioning or interrogation, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. This was not FBI agents. These were local detectives and they kind of picked up on some personality traits of Arthur Shawcross very quickly into speaking with him. One, they found that he was a talker, that he liked to talk, that he liked to open up. If you kept him comfortable, he would keep speaking to you. Mm -hmm. The other thing he seemed to want to never trust a talker. He seemed to want to be their friends in some kind of weird way, even though he was denying all their claims, he seemed to be want, wanting to be their friends in the sense that he wanted to open up to them. Mm-hmm. They used a tactic that I found pretty interesting, which is a little bit weird because this guy has got no soul. My friend, this guy has got no conscience. This guy does not care about human beings or life in general. I mean, he even said in his interview, I have no remorse. Yes. And what they do is they start saying, look, we don't want it. You need to fess up to these murders because we don't want anybody else to get in trouble for this. Mm -hmm. And what they meant was, okay, you're using your wife's car to commit these murders. 
you're using your girlfriend's car to commit these murders. Those two, one of those two or both had to know what you were up to. One of those two or both maybe were helping you commit these murders. Yeah, and he simply just said, after hours and hours of them questioning him and things coming at him is what he said. Yeah. As he just got tired of it, so he just confessed. Yeah, and so he confesses to the murders. Um, Not all of the series that they had at the time. I believe it was 14 or 15 murders in total that they had uh, questioned him about. He would later confess to many of them, actually leading them to a couple of the bodies that had been undiscovered at that time. But it was just in December of 1990 when Arthur Shawcross was convicted of killing 10 women after jurors decided he was sane and deliberated for only six and a half hours. The judge sentenced him to 25 years for each count, a total of 250 years imprisonment. A few months later, Shawcross was taken to Wayne County and tried for Elizabeth Gibson's murder. Rather than claim insanity this time, he pled guilty and received a further life sentence. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home, pre-K 
to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right. Cheers, me mateys. Cheers, Captain. Now, prison officials said that Arthur Shawcross complained of a pain in his leg on the afternoon of November 10th, 2008. He was taken to Albany Medical Center where he went into cardiac arrest. Arthur Shawcross died that evening at 9.50 p.m. He was cremated and later his ashes were given to his daughter. Now, before his death, there was a relationship that Arthur Shawcross developed a uh, pen pal relationship with a man named John Paul Fay. And earlier this year, a book came out called The Shawcross Letters, which gives an inside look 
at Arthur Shawcross, one of America's most notorious serial killers. The Shawcross Letters is a graphic and dramatic true crime book that will horrify, enlighten, and keep you up at night. Author Brian Whitney teamed up with John Paul Fay to write this book to show us what happens when one of the most evil men in the history of America meets a man he trusts enough to share his darkest secrets with. And on the phone with us here in the garage is John Paul Fay, the man that was pen pals with convicted serial killer Arthur Shawcross. Now, John, this is kind of interesting because Arthur actually reached out to you. You didn't actually reach out to him. Well, first of all, he reached out to me first. And uh, initially, I was selling some of his artwork on eBay back when he could sell the murderabilia. And I ended up with his artwork through interesting trades I did with, uh, say, fans of his, uh, quote-unquote, groupies. And I used to sell various videotapes and that type of thing, like uncut horror movies. And uh, so when I got those drawings, I decided to resell them. And uh, Arthur discovered this. And he ended up getting my address from one of his fans, believe it or not, uh, with whom I've uh, traded. And one day I went to the mailbox and there was a letter from the Sullivan Correctional Facility, Arthur Shawcross. And of course, at first I was uh, a bit taken aback. I went to a quiet spot to read the letter away from my so-called family members. And he had mentioned that he knew I was selling some of his artwork and all this stuff. And I wasn't sure how to take it initially. You know, I, uh, you know, if I should feel threatened. But so I, I just uh, collected myself and I wrote him back a letter. It was, uh, you know, uh, very gentlemanly letter. There's no, uh, no problems. And I just said, uh, if you could do more drawings, basically, you know, we could, we could split the proceeds and go from there. And so he got back to me and uh, said, sure, basically, that's a great idea. Let's go ahead with that. And so we, we started, he started uh, do, doing artwork for, for me, which I'd resell and split, split that with him. I just sent him a money order. So then we just, uh, we developed a friendship from there and it became very close for, I, I hate to say it. I, I mean, I, I saw him as a kind of father figure just because my own uh, life has been so twisted as far as uh, male uh, role models, quote unquote. And it just, it, it got strange. Obviously, it's uh, deep down the rabbit hole, that type of thing. But that's where I live anyway. You know, I've always um, been a very uh, kind of twisted, dark character myself. But, uh, say similar thoughts to, a, I say, a Jeffrey Dahmer, kind of Jeffrey Dahmer 2.0. Dahmer, if you were a writer, I think. But I, of course, I've come uh, very close to engaging in those activities myself. But, I mean, I think that that's uh, the summary answer. All right. So you uh, did hear that correctly. You're probably listening and going, what? I'm more the Jeffrey Dahmer type. What is John talking about? Well, so he gets some items from Arthur, and he's selling them on eBay. And then Arthur reaches out to him, and he says, hey, if you draw some more drawings, I can sell these. Mm-hmm. And... As they're communicating back and forth, John opens up to to Arthur and says, hey, man, I got some dark thoughts that I have. Yeah, it sounds like John, you know, has a, a troubled past, mm-hmm. a possibly troubled childhood um, that we can ask more questions about. But this leading to alcoholism, some drug use and some very dark fantasies mm-hmm. to which he's going to confide his thoughts and feelings with this monster, Arthur Shawcross, who's reached out to him. So, John, you say that a friendship developed between you and Shawcross. Now, during the course of this friendship, in the beginning stages, was it simply just business as usual for Shawcross, or was he trying to manipulate you or use you in any way? 
No, no, I never felt manipulated. Uh, it was a park business and, and park friendly. Once he figured out who, what type of person I was, and I did explain that to him in the letter that, uh, you know, I really am in a kind of similar position psychologically, then he loosened up and he got very friendly uh, after that. I mean, long after I, I stopped selling his artwork because eBay banned it, uh, we were still getting along and, you know, and, uh, and even that was before we got into the book. So for, there was a period there where we just, uh, there was a letter about every two weeks and he didn't present himself as a celebrity. He was just, uh, like a friend. So we, we just got into some, uh, strange topics in regard to, uh, you know, cannibalism and, uh, murder and, and all, all that, uh, fun stuff, I guess. I mean, um, uh, you know, I don't see eye to eye with him on, on everything and, uh, I don't necessarily agree on, on what he did, but I, I certainly, I understand it. As far as identifying with uh, uh, serial killers, it would be more along the lines of a Dahmer, where they say killing for company, that type of thing. Uh, Arthur Shawcross himself, I consider it more of a destroyer. He's more like a kind of a human terminator, as I put it. For some reason, we did hit it off. It was, it was beyond, uh, way beyond the business. That, that was actually a small portion of it, of our relationship. Uh, you know, just again, just like two friends talking and you know over beer or something like that. Well, John, I think uh, me and the Colonel have different conversations than you and Arthur had. John, did this ever go beyond just letters? Did you ever go meet him in person? He uh, that that was uh, kind of a uh, contentious deal there because uh, towards the end of our relationship, because I told I was supposed to go and meet him up in New York, and uh, I had just come back from Arizona investing in a, in a low budget movie and kind of exhausted my funds, so I was going to take a little while before I could get up there. So. When I wrote him telling him I was going to visit, he thought that was going to be right away. So he, he said, well, I thought, I thought you said you were going to visit, and he was angry about that. I said, well, just give me another month or so to collect my funds. But, uh, you know, things started falling apart after that. That was, again, towards the end, end of our relationship. But he was upset that I didn't get to visit him. He thought I was going to come up to see him a lot sooner. All right, so Shawcross and Son of Sam were actually in the same prison together. Yeah, and I heard that Arthur Shawcross actually despised David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. Did he ever mention that to you, John? Oh, he resented him, yeah. The, the money that Berkowitz makes and money that he did not make, uh, Shawcross himself. Oh, yeah. It, it was just, it was resentment uh, that uh, Berkowitz was a little more popular. He got, got more fun funding than him. Yeah, so he did talk about him. Over the years, there have been several books written about Arthur Shawcross and many newspaper and magazine articles. Was Shawcross keeping tabs on what was written about him? Was he was he reading his own material? Yeah, absolutely. He absolutely did. He did a lot of reading in general, but he definitely kept up on uh, his own press and uh, whatever books were written about him. Yes. Did Shawcross ever mention the book The Misbegotten Son by Jack Olson? Yeah, yeah. I'm remembering now, actually. Yes, he had mentioned Jack Olson several times. Actually, he sent me an envelope, like with uh, Jack Olson's return address on it, that Shawcross had signed. You know, so I, yeah, actually, I have an uh, envelope here with uh, Jack Olson's return address on it. Believe it or not, <laughs> not that I'm thinking of it. John, did Arthur ever ask you about females in your life? Maybe your mother, sister, or a girlfriend, or somebody? Uh, yeah, once in a while, he would, he would ask what was going on in my life as far as uh, females, but. Uh, you know, for the most part, I was uh, isolated. You know, he asked about my uh, cousin Michelle, for instance, and uh, who was actually uh, for a period there pregnant at the time, and he would uh, uh, joke about that. Say, for instance, 
he never mentioned my uh, mother or, or sister or anything. But uh, yeah, definitely, like the focus was on my pregnant cousin Michelle at the time. Yeah. Did he ever ask you to send him things or pictures uh, of these women? Just a picture of uh, her pregnancy, basically. Um, which he did get a, a copy of a picture of. A photo of my cousin Michelle uh, showing her, her, her belly there at the time. But that, that, was, that was more for comedy's sake, really. Did he ever ask you to send him anything uh, anything weird or anything that would be considered contraband? He never requested anything. I sent him stuff that they confiscated. But, uh, yeah, he never directly requested anything because he, he knew it would be confiscated. Yeah. All right, so we're not going to ask you about that, but uh, John, after you told Shawcross about some of your darker fantasies, mm-hmm. do you feel like he ever tried to manipulate you or send you encrypted messages to kind of point you in the direction or push you over the edge and get you to do some of the horrible things that he has done? Yeah, and I guess I read between the lines kind of way. He'd say things like "be good" or "be good at it," you know, and uh, we both knew what. We were talking about there in that regard, and about uh, pressure points, how to, where to how to choke a person properly, and you know, along those lines. So, yeah, there you go. So the answer is yes. He was kind of teaching me, uh, I guess, how to how to kill or hurt people. You know. Yeah. But do you think he was trying to push you in that direction? He didn't seem to directly want that, but he didn't seem to be against it either. Uh, you know, he knew where I was in my life, so he, he didn't discourage my line of thinking, you know, at all. You know, so it, it almost seemed like he was in, encouraging it, and whether he meant to or not, he he, he was. And, you know, talking about uh, how to pick up hitchhikers and, again, choke them, you know, beheadings, and, you know, that's uh, all that lovely stuff. Yeah, and, and of course, cannibalism is often a topic of discussion between he and I. How to, how to, he, he uh, kind of, I guess, instructing me on how to properly cook a human being, for instance. And, yeah. Uh, again, I guess the simple answer is uh, yes, he, in his own way, he was, uh, he, again, wasn't discouraging me at all. So I know that you guys spoke about cannibalism a lot because that is one of your dark fantasies. A lot of times when he ate pieces of people, it was raw. But uh, other times he had mentioned, say, uh, roasting the, uh, the calf muscles and, uh, over an open flame and uh, indulging in that. And, uh, and basically it was uh, focused on, like, the calf muscles and the, uh, I guess, the, uh, the buttocks of, of women in particular. Yes, yeah, so he would, uh, he, he talked about that quite a bit with me, actually. He went back and forth on that. And, uh, I, I you know, I, I don't necessarily agree again with his uh, type of cannibalism because his was more uh, destruction cannibalism and, uh, my interest would be again something like uh, absorbing the person somebody you have affection for um, assimilation you know uh, kind of a quick and dirty way to upload a person's soul into your own soul uh, his was more uh, I would say barbaric uh, my, mine would be more uh, ritual I suppose I mean my interest anyway how long did your correspondence go on with uh, Arthur Shawcross? It was like, uh, let me think, a little over five years. And it was uh, about a letter every two weeks, like I said. Now, there's an article out there that states that you had said at one point in your life, Arthur Shawcross was more of a father figure or maybe even a better 
father figure to you than your own father or males in your life. Yes, well, that's also true. The uh, male figures in my life have been brutal and ignorant, you know, and like uh, even worse than opinion, just, uh, well, in, in, a, in, a, in a sense, in a sense, I mean, where they, I mean, they abused, uh, they abused me growing up and, uh, in one way or another. And basically, it was just physical or verbal abuse. But uh, my, my own father, he, he never mentally grew up, but he's vicious. He's still basically nine years old mentally, but he's extremely vicious and aggressive. And then my surrogate father, uh, my uh, Uncle Jerry, he was a brutal man. You know, he, he was vicious and violent. And so I had no one to really turn to. And, uh, you know, there's like friends. They're all psych- psychopaths and criminals. And uh, so, I mean, it's, it was so bad. I ended up seeing uh, Shawcross, I guess, as the lesser of evils, as they say. You know, and I got along with them a hell of a lot better than, than the other male figures in my life. You know, so that's, that's how that goes. Well, and John, and just to be clear, we're not saying that, that Shawcross is a better person or a better man than these two individuals. We're just simply saying that your correspondence with him, he treated you with more respect, maybe kindness and friendship than these others have shown you. Yeah, well, that's exactly it. That's, that's, it. that's how bad, that's what I'm saying. That's how bad the other men were. But I had to turn to uh, uh, one of the worst serial killer cannibals this world's ever known. So there you go. That's my life. What did you know about Shawcross before he reached out to you? Well, again, throughout my life, I've been seeking somebody I, I, I could, uh, again, kind of with or identify with. You know, so I, I've been studying, say, serial killers and occults uh, since I was uh, nine, nine or ten years old. I started with a Zodiac killer, again, because I, I was feeling differently than everybody else. I knew it was different, and I was just searching for some answers. You know, so that's the main reason I got into it. So I had read, by that time, 2000, I had read a couple of books about him. Uh, Jack Olson's book and uh, Bill Norris material. And uh, so I, I, I did know about, about him. I had read, uh, had read about him. And uh, at the very least, if not seen, at least a documentary about him. And he discovered you because you were selling things on eBay. Was Shawcross interested in any of your collections? Well, let's see. He was fascinated with the shrunken head collection. Uh, I, I would, uh, again, I, I would be collecting, uh, I collected shrunken heads, replica shrunken heads. Well, one was made out of a real human scale, apparently. But, uh, yeah, collecting those, and he was very interested. I don't think he'd be collecting them himself. He didn't seem like much of a, a collector type, but he was very interested in it and made some about it. But, yeah, I used to collect uh, the shrunken heads and, and mummified heads, replica mummified heads. So, um yeah, I, I've since sold them, but uh, I'd like to start recollecting at some point. Yeah, I, I did get to hold a real one. The, the man I sold them to, he actually he had a real, an authentic one that I, I got to hold. He has a, a little museum, as a tattoo parlor that I visited. And, uh, yeah, so that was an interesting experience, very interesting day. That was a day for a lot of firsts for me. Yeah, yeah get into that another time, but yeah. What was your takeaway from this pin pal relationship with this serial killer? Yeah, well, it, it, uh, it's a very uh, twisted thing to say, but I almost felt uh, wanted and accepted. That was the main thing, that there was someone out there who would accept me. I, I guess that, that's the bottom line. I mean, that sums it up. Other than people's interest in true crime, what are the other reasons to go out and pick up your book? Yeah, it, it's, that's, that's the thing. It's not meant to be uh, gratuitous. Um, 
And it's not one-dimensional. It's not just uh, like I'm just stuck and stagnant at this phase uh, where I'm thinking this way. This is about a recovery from it, a recovery from, I say, purging my boogeyman uh, from, from this type of thinking and uh, as well as the addictions uh, to alcohol and drugs. I mean, that's what it's about. It's about coming out on the other side of this at, at the end of it. And if the thing is, if somebody else is having either uh, these types of thoughts or addictions, the main thing is you have to find someone you trust you could talk to. You got to talk about it. You have to find a therapeutic way to exercise these, these demons without hurting anybody. That, that's the main thing. That, that's what I got to get across. I'm not just sitting here drooling and, and grinning maniacally. I, I really, I, this is about my getting better. You know, that's the point. And I, I've, uh, I've improved almost uh, 180 degree turn, almost. Maybe it's 170 or so, but uh, I'm getting there. But yeah, this is really, I've recovered for the most part from uh, that, that uh, again, that frequency of thought, as I, I say. Um, but yeah, that's the thing. It's, it's really not meant to be, uh, you know, I, again, something where I'm reveling in the evil. It's not that at, at all. You know? Because this was therapeutic to write the book, this is a therapy for me. Again, you know, to, to work out these demons in as diplomatic and healthy a way as I could. You know, that was the main thing. That, you know, I had to get it out of my system. Well, of course, Captain, our recommended reading this week is The Shawcross Letters, My Journey into the Mind of Evil by John Paul Fay and Brian Whitney. You can pick that up at Amazon or wherever books are sold. I want to thank uh, Brian and John for chatting with us. And all of our recommended readings are on our website, so check out truecrimegarage.com. Click on the recommended page. And if you're not listening on the Stitcher app, make sure you download it. We'll be announcing something very soon about partnering with them on a cool project. All right. Well, thank you, Captain. Very exciting stuff. And thank you to everybody out there. Until next time, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.